Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 165 for October 9th, 2008. Listener feedback number 51. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by GoToMeeting. For a month of unlimited online meetings absolutely free, go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers your security online, your privacy online and off, everything you need to know about locking systems down. Security expert Steve Gibson is our guru. He joins us every week from his fortress of security in Irvine, California, home of Spinrite and GRC.com. Good morning, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be back with you. Good Glad to that be here. The world is still in one piece. The market today is pretty much, it, it dipped down to about minus 243 at one point this morning, but it's back up a little positive now. So, you it's, know, after yesterday's harrowing 508-point wow. slide. Yeah, no kidding. It's Ouch. funny. I'm, I was at the gym working out, and uh, as as the market was going up and down, and I kind of I felt like as I was running, I was I was actually like the You're little chipmunk getting the getting the market back on track as it was not, you're bouncing on your ball. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's kind of fun to watch uh, the watch the I don't I leave the sound off so I don't exactly know what's going on but it's fun to watch the market go up and down as I they, Oh, that's fun. It's the, it's funny how uh, in the gym at least and I imagine this is true in, in even in bars and other places CNBC has replaced the traditional golf channel, the news channels. Everybody everybody wants to see what the market's doing. It's yeah. kind of a big story. Yeah, you know it's a fascinating story. So today we're going to make are we are we going to I think we are going to make up uh, our our question and answer. Well, yes, we're going to we're we're going to succeed with the last week's interrupted Q and A. Um, finish that. We've got a whole bunch of good stuff going on. I have a lot of preamble goodies, and about the first half of the Q and A are. Uh, were not from last week. They were. They are uh, responses to the to the sock stress ah. episode that we did, um, uh, and we've got a really great last one. Uh, they were like I don't know what I call it. The really bad news or <laughs> something of the week award. Someone uh, wrote in and <laughs> notified something, and uh, uh, I also. So I want to talk a little bit. I want to follow up at the top of the show about my conversation. I had a, a nice telephone conversation with the the guys who came up with the sock stress deal. Oh, good. Uh, oh, good. I'll talk about that. And we got a lot of uh, weekly news, uh, none that involves Microsoft for a change. It, you know, it actually, does, it doesn't. Uh, just uh, all kinds of other stuff. Some follow-ups from last week, some new stuff, and then our Q&A. Well, we got a busy day. We better get to work. And before we get started, let's mention our good friends at audible.com, Audible sponsors this show without audible of course we'd have to uh, pay you in uh, chiclets and i don't i don't know if that's a good payment so we, we encourage everybody to visit audible.com and check it out now i happen to love audiobooks steve is 
Steve is still a little skeptical. We're going to win him over bit by bit. He likes science fiction. We know that. And he loves watching science fiction on TV. Well, Audible, really, if you think about it, is science fiction on the big screen of your brain. It's your imagination at work. And the science fiction at audible.com has just been getting better and better and better than ever. I want you to take a visit. Go to A-U-D-I-B-L-E.com. Now, they've got everything. 51,000 titles, uh, business, classics, education. They've got history. They've got biography. Uh, of course, romance, mysteries, and thrillers, too. So you're going to get a little brain candy every once in a while in between your uh, your uh, serious books. That's kind of what I do. I'll alternate the nonfiction with the uh, the, the lightweight uh, sci-fi, fantasy, or thrillers stuff. And, and it's really good. I'm just looking at the list. Boy, they, they just come out with more and more stuff. If you're a Doctor Who fan, or a Star Wars fan, or a Star Trek fan, you'll be glad to know that most of the adaptations of these great sci-fi TV shows are online on uh, on audible.com, and you can listen to them. They've got unabridged readings of the classic Doctor Who novelizations published in the 70s and 80s. So if you're a fan of Doctor Who... By the way, Tom Baker narrates this one. I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that he was one of the original Doctor Whos. Here's a little Tom Baker. The Legend of the Osirians. In a galaxy unimaginably distant from ours, on a planet called Festa Osiris, there arose a race so powerful that they became like gods. These are more than just books. These are dramatizations. They bring it to life. And, you know, I tell you, I don't care how much money they spend on a TV series. You're never going to have the vivid reality that you get when you listen to something like this. I, it, I see everything as I listen to it. Let me encourage you to give it a try. Audible.com slash Security now, that's the, I'm sorry, I did that again. Audible podcast. I got to get this right. Audiblepodcast.com slash security. Now, two of our shows have different URLs, which is confusing, I understand. But this one is audiblepodcast.com slash security now. If you go there, you can get a, a free taste, if it were, of, of, of anything, including this great Doctor Who series. This one is Doctor Who and the Pyramids of Mars. Audible.com slash security. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We thank them so much for their support of all of this this week in tech shows, including security now. So, you know, Steve, Leo, yes, sir. I have I have to say that. Am I winning you over? Well, that sounded like kind of a fun yeah, thing. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? I've never been a Doctor Who person, and I don't know whether, I mean, I don't think I would have ever picked up a Doctor Who book, but, you know, that sounded kind of fun. <laughs> so I think one of the things that, ha- one of the things that happens for me, and one of the reasons I don't watch, t- you know, we've been talk- we talked before the show about Fringe. I don't watch sci-fi TV, and Doctor Who was a great example of this because it, it was the cheesiest ever, right? I mean, it was really cheesy. That's my reason yeah. for really avoiding it. And, and 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 I don't care how much budget they have. Inevitably, the TV stuff is not as full big budget as the movie stuff, and so it always, even Stargate, you know, the movie's great and fun. The TV show is just a little smaller, a little bit smaller. Yep. So. I, to me, I like the reading because I tell you, when I read a Peter F. Ham, like drag, uh, what is it, Dragonfall? Man, I fall, fall, dragon. fall and dragon. Yeah. Man, I saw that planet. I saw that jungle. I saw that dragon in a way that you could never, ever do, even with the biggest budget in the world. So. Well, and of course, the same is true. I'll, you know, defending my textual reading as I opposed agree. to listening reading. I, I mean, agree. I have, you know, I have the same thing. I think, you know, for me. 
I'm not a podcast listener in the same way that I'm not an audible listener because there isn't in, in my life there isn't period there aren't periods of time you don't commute your commute is a walk to the living room right and <laughs> when I'm when I'm working out on my stair climber I'm watching um, you know MSNBC in the afternoon and right. catching up on news and and so forth so right. yeah no you don't you're probably not the the target audience for podcasts I just don't or, have or, I don't um, have that opportunity but yeah. I can easily see filling it with with oh. li- with listening if save I save my life. I commuted to uh, Tech TV. So let's so, get to the news of the day. Yeah. Well, first of all, following up on last week, we, the Q&A, about the first half of Q&A, is sort of detailed listener feedback from last week. So I don't want to preempt that. However, what I did want to say is that after we finished the audio and had it assembled, and in fact, once once uh, your team had edited it and provided it to Elaine for her to begin transcribing, um, I I sort of felt badly just that I had been really tough on on Robert and Jack, um, the two security researchers. I mean, I don't think I was unfair, but I was, you know, I was really tough. And um, so I wrote I wrote to Robert a a pretty lengthy note explaining that. That, you know, basically what I had said in the podcast, that I was d- disturbed that they had said as much as they had in in their little interview that they did. And, you know, that I'd been pretty tough on them. Uh, uh, you, know. you gave them f- more warning than they gave Microsoft. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and anyway, so I was I was delighted to receive an email back almost immediately saying, oh, oh and I sent them a link to where they could listen to the audio ahead of time. I said, I'd rather you heard it from me than you heard it from other people, you know, what, I, what I've said. So, because I, I wanted to give them an early heads up, uh, just sort of as, a, as a, uh, a courtesy. And I got an email back immediately saying, Steve, let's talk. Uh, Jack and I are listening to the podcast now. Uh, well, I'll, I'd like to give you a call when, when we're through. And I suggested Skype, and they said, no, nah, phone's better. And I said, okay. So we, we set that up. And they After all the uh, security news about Skype, they may not trust it. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially we got some of that today, yeah, too, yeah. In, in China. I'm sure you've heard about yes, that. Yes, I did, yeah. So um, uh, they, you know, the podcast was 90 minutes, and, and I uh, uh, waited for that. And then it sort of wondered, like, oh, and I said, you know, and, and in our email back and forth, I said, you know, if I said, if you're still interested in talking to me after you've heard the podcast, then by all means, you give me a call. Well, they did call, and um, they were chagrined about what I had said last week because they felt like it further amplified the chagrin they already felt uh-huh. over the fact that this had all become such a big deal. Um we talked for a long time. I talked to both of them, and essentially, well, and we agreed to go off the record. So I'm not going to discuss any of the technical stuff that we shared. But uh, what I can say is that that they never really intended this to happen. They they wanted to do their presentation as as they're still going to at the upcoming conference in the middle of the month, uh, the middle of, of this month of October, and. You know, it's funny because after listening to what I did last week, they went back before calling me and listened again to their interview, sort of feeling like, wow, we didn't think we said that much. And and of course, there's lots now that has been out on the net in this intervening week that has happened. 
um, again, lots of misunderstanding um, and and various people, as as happened with with Kaminsky's DNS issue, guessing like what kinds of things might be going on. So so they were, you know, I, I just want to sort of set the record straight. This sort of, uh, you know, they they feel like it it got away from them. They didn't intend it to. They're certainly not seeking press. They're not trying to, you know, do any self aggrandizement at all. They're they're really unhappy that that this got you know like it came to the attention of the r snake site which then got picked up by slash dot and then of course that's where i found out about it and it just you know went crazy from there they probably assumed as many do eh, it's just a podcast nobody's gonna hear it uh or maybe Internet. they said yeah maybe they said more than they had planned to just as the conversation rolled on or that's what i think did happen i, yeah. I think as as the interviewer sort of seemed to be, you know, not understanding it. There was some some dialogue I've seen that indicates that, well, he really does know, the interviewer no, knows a lot about this, so he was just attempting to draw draw oh, out sneaky. more information. Um, so, you know, for, for you know, in, 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 for, for whatever, um, the good news is that, and, and we've had some email correspondence since our telephone conversation, um, everybody who should now be talking to them is talking to them. Okay. So, so did they not say enough to uh, for for uh, somebody to implement it? I mean, I got the oh, impression that you certainly understood enough to say, oh, I can implement that. Yeah, and no. And, and in fact, uh, I've seen now other things on the net that I will talk about in, in the Q&A section of today's podcast, the first half of our Q&A, where, where it's clear that people are understanding yeah. what it is that they have found. And um, I don't want to tip your hand, but are we seeing exploits already? No. Oh, um, although in a bizarre turn, you know, cause I've been out Googling sock stress, seeing, you know, kind of trying to track the story and understand what's going on. There, there are postings in programmer for hire sites, <laughs> hiring, trying to hire programmers Please to write, write this for us. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> It's sort of like, like if you're, it's not, it's sort of, it's, it's not the case that somebody who could write this would be responsible enough to use it responsibly. But the idea of somebody saying, "Hey, I want you to write a, you know, a, a really bad denial of service attacking tool for me." Jeez, like, always. Uh, uh, okay. You know, oh, anyway, man. that's out there. Yeah. So I well, anyway that I, I just I came away with a good feeling about these guys that that. You know, they certainly know what they're talking about. They definitely found something, as I knew they had from what they were saying. And, and as you remember, I was wishing that they had said less. Um, but um, th- it just sort of it got away from them. And they're they're unhappy that it generated the attention it did. On the other hand, it's not clear that they would they were having success with the major vendors whose attention they wanted to bring it to oh. until this happened. So and they had ta- they had tried to talk to people uh, before the, the conversation. Yeah. They had attempted ah, to, okay. but, but the dialogues had not developed. And apparently, you know, they have now. So, yeah, I so bet that's they have. Good came from it. Yeah. Um, okay, so we have some follow-up. We have some follow-up news and some new tidbits. And follow-ups, um, the... Uh, Actually, it was somebody in the GRC news groups posted a nice little blurb 
from Google's official Chrome blog. And it reads, from the Google's Chrome blog, Google Update is automatically uninstalled on the next update check, typically every few hours. Ah, uh, that's the trigger. After the last Google product using it has been uninstalled, the Google Update team is working on functionality to allow Google Update to be uninstalled immediately upon the removal of the last app. Okay. So they've felt the pressure from this delayed self-removal, and they're going to change the behavior so that when you remove the last Google thing from your system, uh, Google Update is taken out immediately as well. So, and, and again, you know, we talked about it, but there was also lots of other buzz on the net about it. Um, so it's not, you know, I, I, it's, you know, I think it was a person who was posting said, you know, way to go, Steve. You know, thanks for you and Leo bringing this to, you know, uh, making enough of an issue of it that mm-hmm. that Google had to take notice. It's certainly, you know, we probably participated in that, but you know, the net is a big place now, and I'm just glad that Google is responding because I think. There's no reason they couldn't have this thing see that it's the last Google software that's around and just remove itself. Right. So, right. Um, and for what it's worth, uh, as I found, it is not you don't have to have an update check occur. You just have to have Google Update try to have an update check. So whether it's able to contact the mothership or not, even if you have an off the net machine that was once on the net when it got Google and Chrome and so forth. Once once it tries to do an update, even if it fails, it says, okay, well, oh, look, there's nobody else here. Uh, I guess I'll leave, too. <laughs> so it does. It's getting lonely. I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> um, also, updating the, the, the continuing to evolve real DVD saga, um, some interesting news. Um, real DVD has now been removed from the market. Um, so this is go- the this is the real network's attempt to create a program that wouldn't cr- wouldn't well from your point of view as a user wouldn't crack DVD encryption. It has to, of course, to copy the DVD to the hard drive. It then puts its own encryption on or protection on there. Um, and the movie industry sued Rob Glazier and Real Networks, and Rob is countersued. Yes, um, actually, it's I wouldn't say that it has to crack the encryption to copy it to the hard drive. Because, as we know, you can rip DVD files. DVD files are just files. They just won't play. They're just encrypted. Yeah, the files themselves are encrypted, but they mm-hmm. do copy just fine. But isn't that why the judge uh, said, uh, or, or, and the lawsuit, the premise of the lawsuit was, oh, you have to reverse engineer our copy protection. You have to violate the DMCA to do this? No, because oh, they, remember, as a player, anything that is a DVD player. Has and there to be are, able to do that, yeah. It's, exactly. It's got to be able to decrypt the the uh, DVD, you know, the CSS copy protection. So um, th- th- there's a nice piece on Ars Technica that I want to, that I'll share with our listeners. Um, it says less than, because it explains exactly in like the right language where this got tripped up. L- less than a week after Real Networks launched its new DVD ripping and archiving product, Real DVD, a court has ordered the company to temporarily suspend its, dis- its distribution. A visit to the Real DVD website, which is, is realdvd.com, reveals a message from Real stating that the product is unavailable. Quote, due to recent legal action taken by the Hollywood movie studios against us, Real DVD is temporarily unavailable, reads the site. 
Rest assured, we will continue to work diligently to provide you with software that allows you to make a legal copy of your DVDs for your own use. From the moment first, uh, from, from the moment Real first announced Real DVD, this is back reading from Ars Technica, the company was aware that there would be legal questions about the product, but seemed to think that everything would be fine since the company said it had, quote, licensed the DVD technology for a legit for uh, they license the DVD technology for a legal right to playback DVD oh, content. Interesting. So you they know, had just, paid for that. Yes, and ju- just like there are, you know, there are DVD players, you know, software-based players, as 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 we know, that'll play DVDs. Mm-hmm. But you have to have the DVD disc in the machine from which it plays, and that's the difference. The same day. Real DVD was released, however, the company found itself in hot water with the movie studios. Real preemptively filed a lawsuit, which is what we did indicate last week, mm-hmm. on the day Real DVD was released in response to threats from shareholders, to which the Motion Picture Association of America, the old MPAA, responded with its own lawsuit. The MPAA claims that Real has violated DMCA anti-circumvention rules with real DVD, even though that product copies DVDs to a hard drive while leaving CSS encryption intact. It turns out that the, that the association, the MPAA, is picking a nit with the fact that real DVD doesn't require an actual disc to be in the drive uh-huh. when decrypting a movie for playback therefore allowing users to rent, rip, and return right. Okay. By, by not requiring the disc to be in the drive, Real supposedly makes circumvention of the purpose of the encryption possible. Right. So hmm. circumvention of the purpose of the encryption, even though it doesn't appear to circumvent the CSS encryption itself. You know, it's actually uses it decrypts CSS, which it has a license to. Well, really, that's poor design on the part of CSS. It should check for a disk and then they wouldn't have this problem. Well, it's funny, too, because the uh, executive vice president of and general counsel of MPAA says, quote, real networks, real DVD should be called steel DVD. Oh, jeez, these guys, <laughs> they have to really learn this. This rhetoric does not work. It does not. So. So it says a temporary restraining order has been issued against Real while the judge takes time to review all the available documents. A decision will apparently be made as to whether the suspension will remain in place and for how long, a Real representative told New TV. Uh, Given the tenacity of the movie studios when it comes to copyright infringement, however, the MPAA isn't likely to let the restraining order be lifted without a fight. At least Real has one thing going for it. The company managed to have the case moved from the Central District Court of California in Los Angeles, parens, Hollywood's backyard, to the North District Court of California, which may give it a fighting chance against the movie studios. Mm. Well, to be play devil's advocate, because you know I hate DRM, they do have yep. a point. I mean, you could you could use this to circum to effectively circumvent. Oh yeah, R- uh, rent, rip, and return. Yeah, so I could see why they'd want to plug that hole. Yes. And uh, now, you know, what's funny is that DVD decryptor, which is, you know, freely downloadable all you know, over the net. suing them? You know why? Because there is some other country. Well, yeah. And they're, you know, it's software and it's out and it's around and there then there's no one to sue. Right. And in fact, they did stop its support. DVD decryptor was being actively maintained for many years. 
and um, uh, and then they came down on the guy, and so he said, "Okay, I'm abandoning this. I'm disassociating myself uh-huh. with it. I'm not doing anything more." But by the way, it works perfectly. Uh-huh. So, you know, and and you know, I've I've uh, taken advantage of it yeah. for legal purposes. I own content. I've got the original disc, but sometimes it's nice to be able to repurpose it um, in no, in no way that causes lost sales. Of, of the DVD. Well, but that's so, the spirit of the law, but not the letter of the law. The letter of the law is you can't no. copy them. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a nasty little thing to get into. Okay. In new tidbits, yeah. we've got a little, we have uh, some happy news about something we've talked about several times. We've talked about how the, the, the new uh, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, um, guidelines for the 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 level of search and seizure of electronic media when you when you cross the border. Remember we've talked about it. In, oh, you know, we talked about it on Twitter endlessly. I mean, it's just yes. nasty. Yes. Well, there is now in Congress, the in the U.S. Congress, something called the Travelers Privacy Protection Act, which is is current le- legislation. I don't think it's yet enacted, but it's in it's in place and and it's working its way through our various processes which would require the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, to establish reasonable suspicion of wrongdoing before searching U.S. residents' devices. And it would require the Department of Homeland Security to have probable cause and a court order or a warrant to hold the device for more than 24 hours. So, you know, at least, you know, the the notion of having reasonable suspicion of wrongdoing, it, it... raises the bar way above you know some you know like a random strip search of anyone who you know is carrying a laptop and they say oh you know we want to you know remember the issue came up because there were people who were using for example TrueCrypt to encrypt their drives and and the agents were saying you know forcing the the passwords to be revealed in order to you know look through people's laptops and hard drives which will no longer be pot, will no longer be legal without a reasonable suspicion of wrongdoing. That is, they have to have some reason to believe, you know, you can't just be random Joe citizen and have them say, okay, we want to, you know, see what the titles of all your files are. Yeah. Ah, okay. And finally, uh, actually two things, Skype has admitted to the reports that Mm. came out before. You remember that, that, and we didn't talk about this last week, but some Canadian researchers found evidence on, Skype servers that in that that the Chinese version of Skype was was going beyond keyword searching and actually logging the 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 conversations of Skype users whose whose text Skype um, uh, in, instant messages contained keywords mm. and was logging their names and transactions and IPs and and everything. And so, and Skype has has responded. They've said yes. They've acknowledged that you know they didn't realize logging was going on. There's a Chinese affiliate that they work for. Tom uh, is is the Chinese company. And of course, you know this is my this is my great concern with anything like Skype. It's why I you know I've got the acronym TNO, Trust No One, because the fact that the fact that these dialogues, these Skype connections are running through a central server means that you're implicitly trusting Skype not to to be able to spy on you and eavesdrop instead of having a direct point-to-point and not using a third party. So, 
Um, it, I just, you know, that's a, another example of what happens when you do need to trust an intermediary. You, I mean, you you just can't tell what's going on. The fact that they're the fact that they're doing a keyword search inherently means they're able to log. And Skype apparently knew that they had provided with them with keyword searching capability. But in order to do that, they have, you have to decrypt. And if you can decrypt, you can keep records. So, so let's be good. clear. Skype calls themselves are encrypted and cannot be listened in on. Is that right? No. <laughs> this, no, this demonstrates it's not true. But, it, but, the, but that's chat, not calls. Um, I don't know. I'll tell you, the reason I ask, you know, Gary Kasparov, the former world chess champion and an outspoken opponent of Putin, said... I use Skype all the time because it's encrypted and I know the KGB or their modern day equivalent would be listening in. So I make sure I use Skype. And I think there are a lot of people who feel that way, um, especially since we know that the NSA is listening in on our uh, on some uh, domestic calls as well on the regular yeah. phone service. So you think I'm, that a Skype, you would not assume that a Skype call is uh, is safe. Oh, absolutely not. No, in no way would I make that assumption. Okay. Um, the, you, you, the only thing that you could assume is safe is a point-to-point VPN, I mean, a point-to-point encryption where you know everything about the, and, 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 and trust the nature of the way it operates, and you can demonstrate that there's no traffic to a third party. You know, we, we don't have complete documentation of the Skype protocol. They're, they consider that proprietary. They don't want people, you know, making clones of, of their, of what they consider to be their intellectual property. So, no, I mean, so long as there is a third party involved, the fact that I'm that my Skype client is connecting to a mothership as, you know, phoning home as it is, as so is yours, Leo, you and I have a direct point to point connection. Right. But we don't know that the the encryption key, the symmetric key used isn't isn't provided to Skype. Now, the fact is there, that we do know that our traffic is going between you and me. So we know that there's no copy of our traffic going to Skype. So we can, looking at the at the packet flow, we know that that Skype is not participating in that. So you know, so that's certainly a good thing. It, it may be the case though that because um, instant messaging is such low bandwidth, and like Skype will hold messages uh, in you know waiting for for later delivery, it may be that all text goes through Skype Central, whereas um, audio and video does not. It goes point to point where it can. Oh, I want to add a couple of people in the chat room are saying, what's that bill number? The uh, the uh, bill is Senate Bill 3612 for those who want to. The bill on um, the curbing uh, searches at uh, airports. Traveler, I, Traveler's Privacy Protection Act. Uh, so if you want if you want to great. send a note to your member of Congress, your Congress critter, as Corey Doctorow calls him, that's SB 3612. And I and tell him right yay, now. yeah, yay. Okay, and one more un—you know, this is just too bizarre to be true, but is. Um, did you hear about the top secret camera from MI6 that was sold on eBay? <laughs> no, oh, MI6 is a British intelligence arm. It's like uh, our secret service uh, or or NSA. Yeah. Uh, so Wait, tell us there's there's mi5 and mi6 and one is internal and one is external right right, right. so I think that, that way it's external and five isn't i can't remember okay, I haven't re- so, I, i'm trying to remember from my james bond novels i don't know i'll look it up 
there was a there was a uh, a story that appeared on TechCrunch that the Washington Post picked up, and it's it's around the net, so it's easy to find. A 28 year and I'm reading from this Washington Post column. A 28 year old delivery man from the UK who bought a Nikon Coolpix camera for about thirty one dollars <laughs> on eBay got more than he bargained for when the camera arrived with top secret information from the UK's MI6 organization allegedly sold by one of the clandestine organization's agents the camera contained named al-qaeda cells names <gasps> images of suspected terrorists oh. and oh. weapons fingerprint information and login details for the secret services computer network containing a top secret marking once he downloaded the, con- <laughs> the contents of this camera onto his computer, he immediately went to the police to explain the situation. Yeah. The police originally treated it as a joke. But within a week, anti-terror officers started investigating and demanded that he not talk to the media about the contents contained in the camera. Journalist and author Neil Dole told The Sun that the contents are, quote, MI6 documents relating to an operation against al-Qaeda insurgents in Iraq. It's jaw-dropping they got into the public domain. Not only do they divulge secrets about operations, operating systems, and previously unheard of MI6 departments, but they could put lives at risk. MI6 is currently trying to track down the agent who made the mistake. Oops. If caught, the agent could face serious legal ramifications and face suspension. Oh, gee. Uh, I would hope so. It's the external, uh, it's the secret uh, intelligence services. It's the external, obviously. Uh, Holy cow. <laughs> yep. So we talked last week about the VPN that hadn't oh, been, oh, that hadn't yeah. had its configuration wiped. And then when, and when connected, it happily connect, you know, phoned home and connected into some poor company's internal network. And in here is like, you know, serious images left on a camera sold for $31 on eBay. Good deal, by the way, on that camera. Ah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, wow. Well, you know, I think this is a sign. You know, the, the internet uh, makes all of this stuff so much more um, out there and doable. And I think the you know everybody, even the most secretive agencies, have to kind of pay attention in ways they didn't have to before. So I've got two little bits in the randomness grab bag, Scott in. Paul Tuckett, Rhode Island, wrote and said, and I ran across this when I was pulling together the Q&A for today, I realize that your mention of the Richard Matheson novel, I Am Legend, and its subsequent film adaptations, I Am Legend 2007 and The Omega Man 91, both which you and I referred to last week, Leo, was a commercial for Audible, but I thought you and Leo might find this little tidbit of info interesting. The original film adaptation of I Am Legend was done in 1964. Right. It's... It starred Vincent Price, called Dr. Robert Morgan in this version, and was titled The Last Man on Earth. I listen to your podcast as much for the security and technical aspects as I do for the occasional science fiction recommendations. (laughs) Not so occasional, but all right. (laughs) Yeah. He says, Fallen Dragon is now one of my very favorite books, and I've suggested it to many a friend. All the best, and thanks for a great podcast. Yeah, I knew that because when uh, when the the Will Smith I Am Legend came out, there were many articles about the you know the the various uh, adaptations of this book, and that's what actually led me to the book in the first place. Was I, well, I want to I want to read the original, and uh, it is very different. You know, everybody has their own take on it, which is interesting. And my last little bit of randomness is that, uh, as you may know, Leo, photos 
of Kindle 2. Yes. Leaked out. Now, they look, I don't know if they leaked or if they were photoshopped. And this is something those of us who cover the Macintosh. Oh, you mean they could be completely fake. (laughs) Those of us who cover the Macintosh are used to this happening all the time. Uh So we might have a little bit more radar than uh, than the average Joe or CNN. Um, it's it's. I haven't seen anybody from Amazon acknowledge that these are real. But boy, it's the kind of thing you'd expect Amazon to do at some point, right? Well, yeah, and in fact, and it was you who said that there are rumors of of, of a of a new Kindle Am- on the way. Amazon has acknowledged that they are working on a Kindle. Okay. Um, two, uh, they have said that it will be out next year. But I don't know how forthcoming they've been on details, and I think so far it's it's kind of all rumors. Well, and they don't want to cannibalize their current sales. Well, that's no. the risk, of course. So you you don't want to say it's coming out in December because nobody will buy Kindle One, right? So the pictures, the so-called leak pictures, um, I don't think have ever been admitted. I don't think Amazon has ever said that those are actual pictures. It's from a it's from a a, a very big rumor site called Boy Genius Report. Right. <laughs> right. A lot of times. And, you know, if again, it's the Mac people are going, yeah, yeah, we've seen it all before. So we'll just we'll just see. I, it did, you know, it, it looks like something that you would want. Well, I'll tell you, Leo, I have fallen in love with my wacky little wedgie. Yeah, I don't mind. I really, I'm, I've gotten I, I over look- the, 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 the form factor issues, which which yep. are many. And the fact that it's just weird, I mean, it's, you know, it's a bizarre shape, but I look at this one and, and this one for, for our, I mean, for the sake of our listeners, um, it's sort of a, it's like traditional looking, very smooth, very slick, rounded corners. It reportedly has the, like sort of a, a polished stainless steel back, like a, like an Apple iPod does a, a keyboard in a single place instead of being broken into a left hand and right hand sort of thumb keyboard very different navigation buttons um what's missing from the photo and i which actually now that you mentioned photoshop raises my eyebrows is there isn't the lcd uh, selection stripe shown on the right hand side scroller but no stripe yeah so maybe they built a scroller into the e-ink surface or who knows what they they may have done but um leo i would keep what i have I, you I would, mean, even me, looking at this new one. And I did you look zero, at the new Sony one? The new Sony one's quite nice. With the touchscreen. Yeah, touchscreen, built-in light. Yep. Also expensive. It's more than the Kindle is and doesn't have wireless. Yep, and again, it's unfortunately, it's Sony. I mean, I, I, yeah. I owned two of them before the Kindle came along. Me too. Leo, the, the fact that this thing, I've now got, I've added a couple blogs to my four, magaz- my four newspaper subscriptions, and it just... I mean, I love it. Even if I couldn't read books, the fact that this thing is is newspapers and really interesting blogs. And boy, the selection of newspapers has exploded, and the yep. selection of blogs has exploded. There is just so much content now, and it just it you know, and the blogs are like a buck or two a month. So you know, if if I if you the, know, I subscribe to one. I subscribe to Salon because I, I, I never read any of them, and I still don't even read that enough. I feel like I'm yeah. wasting my money. Do you are you pretty religious? You read it every morning and you get through it. And yeah, I'd like having them there. <laughs> I like having I'll, them there exactly. No, yeah. no, but I mean, but I do spend I do spend several hours in the morning reading the the, the newspapers, and I'll jump around. I'll I'll wonder what the Wall Street Journal has or right. the New York Times or or the Financial Times, and I just sort of I'll scan the front pages. Often, depending upon you know 
my mood, I'll spend many hours or just a few. So, but I mean, I the sense I have coming away is I really know everything that's going on that I that I care to know. So, it's super useful. Super and I have super, a, useful. super useful. I have a very short little spinrite uh, anecdote from a David Lisney in uh, Hertfordshire oh, in the UK. I say, and he said the uh, topic was. Uh, Oh, it, it just came in through our reg, regular um, feedback so, so, so submission, which is why I know where he's from. He said, on the Spinrite Saves Lives subject, <laughs> I, he says, I used it on a PC running a paging system for the London Fire Brigade. This is the largest brigade in the world as far as the population in their catchment area. I guess that means like the size of the area that they're responsible for. Because um, he talked about the far as far as the population, he said. He said the machine which was running our paging system upon which we depend had chugged away twenty four seven for ten years, and had finally suffered a failure of CPU fan and crashed. After replacing the CPU fan, the PC still did not boot up. I ran Spinrite on the failed drive. It raced through, and in under an hour, the PC was booted and running again. My colleagues could not believe it. Ironically, this PC was due for replacement the following week. Uh. The, the story is not as exciting as some you have received, but it did save a lot of head scratching. Needless to say, the recovered machine was fine now for the oh, for, for, fine for the remaining week and has now been put to use in a non-critical area, still running the same repaired drive. Thanks for Spinrite. Love the show. Regards, David. Well, isn't that nice? So, happy nice, story. Another nice story. Happy yep. story. Somebody happy with spin right. Before we get to uh, our questions, I would like to mention our folks uh, at Astaro.com, longtime sponsor of Security Now, because, well, Astaro means security. If you are a uh, an IT pro, you've got a business to protect, small or large, Astaro is the name you should consider for the ultimate in unified threat management. Astaro is amazing. The Astaro Security Gateway just combines the best of breed in commercial and non-commercial UTM software. I mean, unbelievable variety of stuff. You've got the Astaro Command Center, by the way. I haven't talked about that in a while, but the ACC is free for users of the Astaro Security Gateway, and it lets you as a network administrator manage and control multiple gateways from a single dashboard. That's good because the Astaro Security Gateway can be, uh, uh, as you grow, you can go, uh, uh, you could scale up with up to 10 of them in kind of a clustering solution. So, you, you know, you might want this or you might want different ASGs in different parts of the business or even distributed geographically. There's a world map on the uh, control center that allows you to visually locate and control gateways everywhere in your enterprise, all over the world. Complete monitoring capabilities. You can shut them down. You can control them. The Star of Security Gateway includes three kinds of antivirus, two for email, one for the web that's got web content filtering, anti-spyware, instant messaging, peer-to-peer control, a firewall, of course, intrusion protection, of course, remote access via SSL on your VPN. That's really cool. Makes it easy for the boss. He doesn't have to do a lot of configuring on his end. Um, It also has uh, kind of transparent digital encryption via open uh, PGP or SMIME uh, and digital signing. And I have to say, I I wish more people use digital encryption. I use it on everything. Um, and if you can do it this way through the gateway, nobody, you know, uh, uh, none of your desks has to, none of your seats has to know about it, but it's automatic. It's built in. It's easy to use. I just love the Astaro security gateway. 
I want to, I want to encourage you to try it out for free, a free demo unit in your business. Call 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O. That's 877-427-8276. If you're a non-commercial user, download the VMware appliance and try it for yourself or even download the software from A-S-T-A-R-O.com slash security now. Astaro Security Gateway. We thank them so much for their support of Security Now. All right, Steve, let's, are you, whoa, are you ready for the questions? There's two of me and none of you. Let's bring you back. (laughs) Are you ready for the, are you ready for the questions here? Bring a new meaning of the term talking head. (laughs) Talking, I can't talk to myself on the show. And in fact, I do uh, quite a bit. Uh, Let's see here. I I had the email and I had it open and I, I guess I closed it. Question one from John Schember in Florida. He's wondering about Vista and TCP exploits. He writes, Vista includes a new network stack. We talked about this when Vista first came out, developed just for the OS. According to the latest episode of Security Now, Vista should be vulnerable to this newly discovered TCP stack attack. Since Vista is supposed to be the most secure Windows yet, why did Microsoft design a new stack that was inherently insecure? Well, nobody knew about sock stress, right? I mean, that's that's something... Nobody well, really knew about. Yeah, um, it's one of the things that I keep seeing out on the net, and I tried to make the point last week, and I want to reiterate it, and that is that this is not a bug in anyone's implementation. It's that in order for TCP to to have the the, the power and flexibility that it has, which is truly phenomenal when you consider. You know, it's it's a it's a complex protocol, but it's able to like a single protocol is able to handle massively wide variations in in network connection. It can it can handle very slow connections. It can handle very large, very fast connections. It can handle connections with a short delay or with a long delay. That is, you know, where remember that we're we're just sending individual packets Um in the final analysis, individual packets from point A to point B and, and routing across the net, you know, can go, you know, a few hops or many hops. It can go to, you know, to a, to a satellite transmitter up into the sky to a satellite and back down where you have really much larger latencies. And sometimes um, the way some of these work, you have a like downloading to you comes down by satellite, but then uploading goes back over, over a, a terrestrial link, typically a modem. Um, so there you've got, you know, very different different operations so each direction in tcp can basically run at its own speed and adapt itself to the network well in order to pull off that magic there are the the protocol has to first of all be very sophisticated and it has to be very adaptive and so what what these guys have done is by really understanding the guts of of the way tcp is implemented they've been able to say you know what would happen if, if if we you know had an one endpoint that was behaving in a specific way deliberately, and then what would happen if we had a lot of those? And so it's a combination of sort of stretching the 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 correct operation of TCP out to sort of a an edge case, and then doing it a lot. And so it's not at all that Vista's stack is vulnerable. In fact, it's the sophistication of modern TCP stacks 
that allows them to to be as adaptive as they are that actually is sort of the, is the source of part of this vulnerability but the vulnerability unlike many of what much of what we talk about where we talk about vulnerabilities that are the result of design flaws or implementation flaws this is just a a sophisticated protocol that is inherently prone to abuse and and so the this is what makes fixing it tough because, because this, is, this is in the nature of how it works yes you know to, to give an example and this is again something already out on the net and it's something that that had occurred to me um but you know i can say it now that i'm that it's it's been it's now being bandied about one of the things that happens with fast networks that also have latency there's something called the bandwidth delay product and we've discussed this in the past the idea being the bandwidth delay product is the size of the pipe times the delay from point from from endpoint to endpoint and what it essentially refers to is the amount of data which is in flight between the sender and the receiver and so if you have a fast link and it's it's got a long delay well then you end up with with a large bandwidth delay product well the way tcp works is it it acknowledges the receipt of data back to the sender periodically not every single packet that comes in is acknowledged but but there are there are various um systems and that and in fact the the acknowledgement routine is adaptive as well well when an application wants to send data it sort of dumps it into the tcp layer it says here's a bunch of stuff i want you to send so tcp allocates buffers to accept it and then says okay fine to the application okay fine we'll send that for you the application goes off on a, about its business now remember that that in their original podcast they talked about um working tcp in the face of of lost packets high packet loss situations well tcp the sending end has now accepted this data from the application the application has gone on the application is able to assume that the data that's given tcp will be sent reliably that's tcp's job well what this means is until all the data in these buffers has been acknowledged by the other end that 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 local tcp stack that is on the server side which is typically serving large files it has to hold that data it can't there's no mechanism for it saying oops wait a minute to the application can i get some of that back because the other end said it never received it it doesn't work that way tcp has accepted responsibility for delivering it and now must which means it has to hold that data well there are ways to cause tcp to believe that the network bandwidth delay product is very large meaning that it will expand its buffers in order to hold all the data basically it's got to hold a copy of all the data in that it could be in flight and it has to hold it until it's been acknowledged so you can imagine that this is a way of causing the local tcp stack to require um you know that each instance of a connection end up with a large buffer mm. and so you know again there's nothing about tcp that's broken it's it's the way it's, it's supposed the to work. Of the beast. So it's how do you fix it? Well, 
Um, that's why this is such a tough problem. <laughs> redesign the protocol? Well, we can't do that, of course, because, I mean, it's out there. It's, right. I mean, it is the protocol. Right. It's, you know, it, it's taken quite a while to put it together right and get it all working right. Um, what will end up happening is that to the degree that this is used in an attack, and and we've got a couple of questions that, we're, that we'll be encountering next that, that question this, uh, that is even why it makes sense to use it in an attack. But, you know, you could imagine, and as I said last week, that the, the vendors of firewalls are no doubt immediately revving their products to be aware of, of these kinds of abuses. Mm. And so you can imagine that with time, there, there will be probably preemptive protection against this. Preempt, for the, for the, in other words, the firewall have to handle it, not the stack itself. Well, um, Microsoft has in their later servers in in IIS, um, they've got more more it, IIS, there, which is Microsoft's web server, mm-hmm. is more finicky about connections. Ah. In IIS version five, there is a timeout for like a, a a connection that's not doing anything, and and I think Microsoft, I think they default to nine hundred seconds, which would be fifteen minutes. And so that's, you know, that's a long time to wait before giving up that connection, before the server closes the connection preemptively. Certainly, you could bring that time down. But they've got some other in, in IIS 6, which is um, available in their, in, in their later server operating systems. There are also like, like a, a, there are limits you can place on the, at the rate at which data is leaving the system. And if it seems too low, IIS will just say, eh, this seems kind of fishy to us. Let's just shut down this connection. And so you, there are things you can do to, to hopefully not introduce false positives because you don't want to be you know, hanging up on valid users. But at the same time, you want to be less tolerant about strange connections which might be attempting to abuse your service. Hmm. Very interesting. Paul Cousins in Regina, Saskatchewan, had a worm counterattack idea. He says, Hi, Steve and Leo. I've been a longtime listener of Security Now, and your show about sock stress gave me an idea. This is going to be a little black hat and probably bordering on illegal to actually implement this. Uh, but it's still fun to speculate. Is there any way this new attack could be used by security firms or even individuals as a way of taking worm-infested computers off the Internet. You know, this idea comes up from time to time, I have to say. It's not anything new. It's just a new way of doing it. The idea being you leave your computer open to connections. When you identify a connection from a worm or bot-type program, you launch a, a sock stress attack on them. As I said, this is probably bordering on illegal. Not bordering, it is. Yeah. As you would effectively be killing off computers of innocent users, but I wanted to hear what Leo and you thought of this kind of concept being applied to the real internet and what many issues of internet background radiation as you like to call it are thank you for a great show what what's what is your take on that well okay the first part of his thought that is that we we are leaving our computer open to connections i discussed that last week this notion of a tar pit right where you would deliberately have listening ports on I mean, on tasty ports that that worms want to attack this was our and, this was a topic of the very first security now. No kidding. The, the jump honey monkeys or whatever you whatever they were. <laughs> remember Microsoft was doing this? Right, right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Windows Honey Monkeys. Whatever. I'll look it up. Uh, <laughs> yeah. wasn't, it wasn't Honey Monkeys. It was something like that. It was. Uh, <laughs> it was I can find close, it though. It was twitch.tv slash sn1. And uh, da, 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 da. No, I, of course, it, I don't have a very good description of it in the show notes. Alas. It was a funny episode, too, because, you know, you, you were funny on that one, Leo. It was, you were wonderful, I remember. Anyway, so the idea being that, that a, a tar pit accepts a connection and then manages to stall it. Strider so, Honey Monkey. Spider, that's what it was. Yep. yep. <laughs> it was episode two. Security Now episode two. <laughs> so the idea is that, that um, the computer accepts a connection and then stalls it, basically holding on to that connection rather than either saying, no, I'm closed and allowing that the, the scanner to go scan somebody else. Basically, it sort of stalls it and keeps it in a so-called tar pit. Now, the reason Paul's notion doesn't work is that, that we've got a connection. Well, there's nothing we can really do to it uh, we, w- without engaging it in a protocol. So in order, to, in order to attack a machine, we need it to be the server, and we are the client, wherein the scenario of a worm scanning us, it's looking for our open ports, that is, open service ports at our end, and, and, uh, and then ho- uh, hoping to abuse a vulnerable service on our machine. Right. So really... There, there's no way to switch this around on the fly when we, you know, when, when, when a worm attacks us, if it had open ports. That is, you know, the only way that the Paul's idea would, would work would be we get a connection from a worm. We know that we assume it's a worm, and that's one of the first assumptions you need to make. And it's not like your ISP scanning you to check for your own security or making sure you're not doing things that are against their own terms of service. And there has been some of that going on. But the idea would be you accept a connection. We know it's not spoofable. So whatever it is that's hooked to you, you've actually got their real IP. Well, then you'd have to do a port scan of them right on the fly. You do a port scan of that machine in order to look for any open ports and then launch sock stress attacks against those open ports. But again, bad idea because it's illegal and you do not know who you're, you know, (laughs) who you're attacking essentially. In fact, uh, I remember there was a virus. I can't remember then which one it was. That was the author said, Oh no, uh, my plan (laughs) was to, was to get the bad guys out of the good guys. It uh, it doesn't, you're not allowed to do this. It It doesn't matter. Yeah, you still go to jail. And and it isn't a very good idea. It isn't. Jamie Scanlon in Venice, California, was also thinking about TCP uh, stack attacks. What a surprise. He writes, Steve, I just heard your discussion on the uh, on the sock stress issue. Would it, what would happen if the TCP stack would just not care if the client were not able to deal with the connection because their buffer was full? My logic would be if you don't have buffer space, you shouldn't be making the connection in the first place. I know this is not in the protocol, but how much of the internet would break if this were implemented? That's kind of an interesting idea. Just ignore it. Well, yeah. In fact, that's another setting that many servers have. I'm sure we've, you know, all of us who've been surfing the net for a while have have typed in a URL or clicked a link, and we've come across as a dumb blank white page that just says "server too busy." Yes. That's what that "server too busy" message means is that the there's an administrative limit. That is, whoever it is that's running the server, for whatever reason, said, 
we're going to accept only this number of connections. Presumably, they're saying somebody who can connect to us, we want to guarantee a certain level of service to them. And that's better to do. It's better to deny new newcomers connections that we couldn't adequately service than pull the whole server down. The idea being, okay, well, and it's an arbitrary limit. It's like whatever, you know, based on experience, maybe 100 people or 100 connections total can, can be hooked up to the server at this time because of, you know, bandwidth limitations or whatever. And so the, the idea is we'd rather just say, oh, sorry, we're too busy, try again later, than slow everybody down to the, to the average um, of, you know, of, of whatever number of, of connections are coming in. So that's, you know, an interesting policy. It wouldn't break the Internet. It would just, you know, maybe annoy people. You know, I, I don't I have a, a high limit at GRC because, you know, we've got good bandwidth and my server's not heavily loaded down and I've never needed to impose a, an impose a limit, but I certainly could if, you know, if, if that ended up being the, a better approach. And again, We've all probably encountered that as we've surfed the net. So oh, yeah. certainly some people do. They just okay. say, uh, we don't have, we, you know, our, our resources are strained. We're not going to accept, we're not going to entertain any, any new comers. Seems like there would be a more graceful way to degrade, but I, maybe there isn't. Maybe you just have to say no. Go well, away. you could say, would you, would you, you know, we, we can accept a connection, but how would you like being like the last person on the block to get any slow. data? It'll be yeah. slow. But, you know, it'll be literally uh, the we will service these in in first come, first served order right. in some right. in some sort of fashion. Right. So, you know, stay around if you want to. How, you know, how badly do you want what we have? <laughs> Are you in a hurry? Donald Stone in the UK really spun up his propeller beanie for this next one, Steve. As I understand the problem, the source of the attacker is verified. But the attacker then states, oh, I'm too busy to receive any packets at the moment thus causing the server in question to start a timer to increment the time between attempts to successfully communicate with the client, the fake busy client. Yep. It is these timers running which results in the resource clogging. Surely a workaround to this problem would be to ignore connection attempts from the client IP when a threshold of failed connections has been reached, kind of like what we talked about. Right. Also, to discard the previous connection attempts from the client IP, there should be a limited time during which any rejected IP address should be blacklisted by the server in order that it should be a genuine communication. In order that should it be a genuine communication error, the client would have to wait five minutes or so, some arbitrary amount of time, before attempting to reestablish a legitimate connection. Surely this would reduce the impact of this form of attack considerably. The botnet attack scenario would still pose a risk. You know, the, the, the big distributed denial of service attack albeit a higher risk now as it does anyway. Well, and that's kind of Donald, a, same thing, right? Yeah. Well, Donald got a lot of value from spinning up his propeller beanie <laughs> on this one. Um, he's exactly right. This is the kind of thing that you could imagine security device vendors. I mean, there right. are many, many vendors of security devices um, for many years when I was sort of a newbie at this, I had uh, actually, when I originally got uh, set up with Vario, I said, you know, I knew I needed a firewall and I wanted industrial strength. And they set me up with a watch guard. Watch guard mm -hmm. is a vendor of a, you know, they actually, I think it's called the firebox or something. Mm -hmm. It's literally, it's bright red painted box. <laughs> and uh, so that was my, my, you know, early on my first exposure to this. And, and so it's that kind of a vendor that I'm sure right now are busy introducing a series of upgrades to their products that will 
add awareness about these kinds of problems if they're not already there. I mean, there there very well could be sort of degenerate TCP connection uh, strategy and logic in this kind of border protection device. And, and if so, that's exactly this is an example. What Donald said is that, you know one way it could work. Good. You literally monitor your your connecting clients, and if you see some that misbehave, you decide okay. Um, you're, you're, you know, you're bad. And in fact, now that I think about it, I remember that that machine that, that I had, that firebox, the WatchGuard firebox mm-hmm. did have a blacklisting facility. And I don't remember exactly how it worked, but, um, actually I think I do now. It was by client IP. And cause I remember I, I came up with a wacky hack that, Andy, my Vario engineer, really thought was kind of uh, interesting. There was something that clients could do that could upset me, and if I and I, what what I did was I used my own my own raw socket system to send a packet at the firebox, spoofing that remote IP. Uh, and contacting a service that I didn't want, that I wanted to like trigger. And this thing, whatever it was, I spoofed the remote client that to, to tell the firebox that they were bad and attacking me and to cause them to go into the blacklist. And so it was a way for me to add people to the firebox's blacklist um, using my own logic rather than the firebox's logic. Hmm. Uh, it worked great. I don't remember. I mean, this is in the dark ages. This is, <laughs> this is, this is a long time ago. But uh, so, yes, certainly that kind of approach could could work in this case. Very good. Another one for England. Score another one for the British Empire. And now moving along to uh, Matt Ludlam in Weybridge, London. He makes another great point, this time about sock stress and botnets. Love the show. Been listening since episode one. Favorite netcast, et cetera, et cetera. So (laughs) if a botnet has 10,000 machines, as many do, then if each of them simply opened 100 connections to the same host at about the same time, holding them open would generate about a million connections, which is probably enough to cause it to fail. Yes. 100 connections is probably well within what a Windows client machine could handle, but a million is probably well beyond a server, particularly if it's tuned for HTTP requests, which tend to be short. Whilst I appreciate that messing around with user mode TCP stacks allows one machine to do this, surely if you have a botnet at your disposal, you don't need any of that. I'd be interested in your comments. Yes, and I, I put this in because you know I wanted to acknowledge Matt's uh, notion, and also there's been a ton of dialogue about exactly this on the net. Well, what saying, he's saying is that who cares about sock stress? There's always the DDoS, right? Well, and and he's even saying. In this case, not even, not even flooding, but just connections. I mean, oh, I a see. Windows it's not a system, sin flood. It's just you know, a million connections. Yeah, if you yeah. had ten thousand machines, and many, many people do on their bo- ten, uh, many bad guys do on their botnet. Ma- many bad guys have ten thousand machine botnets, and and every one of them could easily just open a hundred connections. Just say hi there. I mean, not even pr- performing any fancy TCP um, sock stress. Uh, exploits just opening a hundred connections, and he's he, bring, he brings up that that you know you do the do the math, and that's a million connections, which would be very rough for your typical website to handle. As you know, you and I know, Leo, when we mention something 
uh, you know, the uh, live and you've got Twit live listeners, it immediately brings those sites down. Right. Because yeah, we you know, do that all the time and not yeah. intentionally, I should say. No, and not a million. There's what? A like few thousand. A few thousand. Exactly. So, so many, I've seen this echoed in many forums online when people are talking about sock stress, they're essentially saying, you know, um, there are already bots that are able to do DDoS and they're distributed and then they use a lot of bandwidth. And, and the point being, so what if there's like some undisclosed another way of using TCP? Uh, we don't need another way. And, and this way doesn't allow you to spoof. And spoofing is nice if you can do it because then you're not giving away the IP of all of your – all of the, the clients in your – or all, all, all the zombie machines in your botnet. And so big deal. It's like, eh, you know, sort of like – It's just okay. another tool in the hacker's toolbox. But the point of this is that it requires – doesn't require a botnet essentially. Correct. Well, and in fact, I, the, the, the counter argument, if I were to raise one, would be that there are – high value like gambling sites where you know where that have been the the subject to extortion and are the repeated subject of extortion as right. we've talked many times for example by by you know literally organized crime operating out of the Ukraine and 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 various places where they're the in order to keep these sites on the net they've moved themselves onto very expensive, very large pipes behind behind organizations that specialize in anti-DDoS attacks. Now, one hopes that it is not just bandwidth flood protection, because if not, then here is a new way of of providing a non band a non high bandwidth attack, which could be new and might succeed in pulling these sites down. So, so, so the fact that this is new doesn't necessarily mean it has no value to attackers. Um, it, it's just, sure, there are existing ways to attack most sites. Um, this is a new way that might, might give a new way around. And again, unfortunately, you can imagine where there's big money here in this kind of extortion that, you know, that's where the attention is being focused on, oh, wait, you know, maybe we can develop this new idea into some non-high bandwidth attack and, you know, succeed with our extortion where we're, we're no longer able to otherwise. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, there you go. Um, <laughs> it's just one more way they can hit us. Yep. Uh, and that's the point, really. I mean, it's not like one one is to the exclusion of the other. They're all... They're all good if you're a hacker. Bad. Or all bad if you're not. Brian in Wichita, Kansas heard what Steve said, but not what he meant. Listen up. He says, Steve, in episode 164, you mentioned that routers have open TCP ports. You said they typically accept border gateway protocol connections. Not really being advanced in my knowledge of routers, this is something I'd never heard of. Actually, I'm going to confess, I didn't know either that just a regular cheap router could could accept BGP uh, connections. Does this mean that my router I use at home has open ports? I don't use port forwarding for anything. And my router is a two-wire gateway, which doesn't support the unsafe universal plug-and-play you've mentioned in a few episodes. So I'm, fa- I'm safe as far as that's concerned. I-, I assumed it doesn't have any open ports since I haven't opened any ports. Are those open ports you mentioned isolated from the firewall? In other words, 
Do they only allow connections to the router itself? Is my network still safe? I would hate to think the router's firewall has holes in it. What is Ugh. this BGP stuff? And I've got to apologize to Brian and you, Leo, and any other listeners I confused by saying this. I, I didn't make myself clear. Um, I meant formal out there on the Internet routers. Not, not, not our routers, not our not, cheesy little Linksys. Not the toys that well, we have. To be honest, here. I, it's my fault. and I will take the blame for it because I, sh- I heard that and I should have said something. But I understood you to mean the big Cisco routers that are running the Internet. I understood that, but I, want, I should have said something to make that clear. Right. BGP is port 179. There's no reason for a Linksys to take BGP commands. No. What, what, <laughs> what, what BGP is, just to give a little information to, to follow up this, this clarification, it's what routers use. It's called Border Gateway Protocol. It's what routers use in order to share with their peers that is the, the routers they're connected to, the, the, the networks that they're able to route to. So essentially, a router knows that, it's, that one of its interfaces is connected to this set of networks, and a different interface is connected to this set of networks, and a different interface to this set of networks. Well, it needs to, it needs to share that information with the routers that it's connected to. So it uses BGP, Border Gateway Protocol, essentially to share its routing tables with its, with its peers so that, so that when the peer receives a packet, it's able to figure out which one of its interfaces to send that packet out of as it hops to the next router. Well, that's, of course, determined by which networks that next router is able to send the packet onward towards its destination. So, you know, it's, it's very elegant. I mean, it's, it's the height of elegance, actually, the fact that this all works as well as it does. But it does create a potential vulnerability on port 179 for, you know, formal Internet routers, not, again, the little consumer boxes of, of you know, plastic that, that we use at home. They've never, you know, I mean, you certainly load real routing software into them, um, many of them that run Linux, for example, and, and get support for BGP, but there's no purpose for it. I mean, it wouldn't do anything for your little router, but it is, it is the, the core protocol that is how routers use, um, or how, sorry, routers talk to each other in order to share the connectivity that they all have with the routers that are adjacent. And there have been many attacks in the past against port 179, the BGP port of commercial routers. Various, For example, there were some TCP spoofing attacks where, where people assumed that the routers had existing connect, BGP connections and were able to splice themselves in to the TCP connection and in order to like put in, in order to spoof the routing tables and redirect the, the uh, router traffic to other locations. So there've been some, you know, interesting exploits in the past. Those have, those sorts of attacks have been hardened against. Um, and, you know, something like Shields Up would immediately tell you if your BGP port, you have your own router at home were open and accepting connections, it would be port 179 and Shields Up would tell you, "Oh, that's BGP port right. 179." Right. Okay. So the fact that I don't think I've ever seen anyone say, "Wait, you know, why does my router have have, you know, BGP port open. And if it were open, it still wouldn't know what to do with anything that came in at that port. Yeah. 
I mean, no. it just go, huh? <laughs> you right. want to do what? <laughs> no, can't do that. So I did not mean little routers. I meant big iron routers. It's not your fault. It's just uh, there's a confusion between the two terms, frankly. Yeah. Uh, they both say they both are called routers. You know, a little a little thing in the back of my head went off when you said it. The problem is, Steve, we tr- we we you're such an authority that I don't. You know, I think all of us go, oh, okay, whatever you say, <laughs> whatever, yes, sir. <laughs> I don't I don't question you. And uh, next time I'll make sure to get that clarified. Kyle in Des Moines disagrees with the corporate IT administrators. Oh, who doesn't? Hi, Steve. Before I ask my Security Now question, I'm happy to tell you I've listened to every Security Now episode since episode one. See, he knew about the Strider Honey Monkey. And I've enjoyed every episode. I listen to dozens of podcasts, including many TwitNetcasts. And while podcasts have come and gone from my subscription lists over the years, Security Now has always been among my favorites. That's nice. Thank you, Kyle. I must also tell you that I'm a SpinRite owner and thankfully have never needed it in an emergency situation. Should that situation arise, however, I will be ready. That's Listen, all we please answer. don't forget that you have it, Kyle. Yeah, so. exactly. You know, it's funny because we, you do kind of forget. And uh, The other day we had a hard drive issue and Colleen came, came back later and said, oh, I forgot. I should have, I should have used SpinRite. Oh, yeah, we got that. We got that somewhere. Now for his question, Kyle asks, he says, I'm an IT professional. Oh, a programmer. And I found him be myself in disagreement with our office land administrator over a security issue. I bet you get a lot of these questions, you know, like answer a bet for me, Steve. Who's right? Our land administrator believes it's possible for our public web server to be infected by spyware that is installed on the computers of customers who visit our site. I disagree. While I could see that a security hole in the web server or OS server software could possibly allow that machine to be compromised in a rare circumstance, I see no other way for a spyware-infected machine to spread its malware to a web server simply by that machine making an HTTP request to the server. I should also mention that a firewall only allows HTTP and HTTPS traffic to this web server from the outside world. The machine is hardened in all the usual ways. I just don't see any way for spyware to happen in, in the circumstance. Would you care to settle our disagreement? Thanks to you and Leon. Keep up the good work. Can it happen? Well, I agree with his with his assessment. Yeah. Um, there, there have been, once upon a time, exploits which only required an HTTP request to implement them. So it's not inconceivable that if there were bugs in the server... Uh, IIS had some horrible ones in the early days where, you know, you could you could basically take the machine over just by giving a malformed URL. But he specifically says, you know, notwithstanding a security hole in the web server or OS, you know, is it possible that an HTTP request could do that? And so absolutely not. You know, the HTTP request is simply a request for a page. Now, it gets more complex because, as we know, the original spec for HTTP was the, the the notion that web pages were static, and you were simply requesting static web pages from from some remote server. That was extended with the get and post um, verbs, HTTP verbs, to allow you, in the guise of a request, to actually be sending information back, and that enabled the whole web 2.0 concept, you know, that, that you know, users could, right. could add comments to blogs and so forth. So you you were accepting their data. But again, the idea being certainly that, that you're not 
going to allow anything malicious to be done by someone who's fundamentally anonymous and outside of your system. So, so I would say, you know, we never want to say never in security. So, you know, to Kyle, I would say it's certainly the case that, that, that if everything is working right, that no one making HTTP or HTTPS requests would be able to harm a server and I've never heard of any spyware who, that, who, that makes its goal that of of trying to do so because, you know, there, there isn't a clear way to do that. At the same time, we've seen all kinds of exploitable web-based attacks. There are lots of web-based attacks, but again, it requires some sort of vulnerability in the, in, in the software or server that is receiving those requests. Yeah, I mean... You're you're being generous. You're being complete. It's very very unlikely. Yeah, like not going to happen. <laughs> I certainly, especially, I especially don't worry about not it. especially not random spyware infections on no. visitors' machines. Yeah. Uh, well, and most visitors are running Windows, and, mo- and at least my all my servers are running Unix or Linux or some form of Linux. So um, that's even more unlikely, right? You'd have yes. to write you'd have to write a Windows spyware program that would be HTTP aware would be Linux aware, and then I guess it'd have to be an exploit. I mean, there's no there's no g- generic way that this could happen. It'd have, right. to, it'd have yeah, to be a flaw. Well, there, there, there's certainly no invitation to right. allow people to right. accept code and th- that you run on your machine. The thing so. to understand is that you are not... The, the, the web server doesn't look at your disk, and, and you're in a very constrained way looking at the web server's disk. It's not like you guys have right access to each other's disks. Right. Eric in Los Angeles has seen a change in malware behavior. Oh, it's changing all the time, I'll tell you. Sometimes he says we want to test using Shields Up, and even when the connection's proxied. I work for a large company, and I'm trying to check the security of a new proxy server. But Shields Up detects the proxying, refuses to proceed because the connection's proxy. That's just how you do it. Um, I deliberately installed an SSL proxy because more malicious sites are using SSL to avoid the anti-malware filters. Maybe you could adjust Shields Up and uh, and allow for that SSL proxies and mention it on the show. What 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 do you say? Well, I don't know how to do that. Um, that is without without causing Shields Up to do the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Um, many ISPs are using proxies, the so-called transparent proxies, where their users are actually having their request intercepted by the proxy, and then that proxy reissues the request to the web server and then receives the result, caches it, and then sends the response back to the user. The advantage of that to the ISP is that if a different user visits the same site, many of the site's components, all the little widgets and pictures and, and, you know, UI fluff that pages have that take a lot of time to fetch remotely, they'll be available on the local proxy because somebody else went to the site and pulled the same collection of debris, you know, visual stuff um, through the proxy. It kept them in the meantime. So the advantage is the ISP is able to improve the performance of the apparent web performance for that second customer and any others who use those before they expire from, from the proxy's cache. And the ISP is able to limit and reduce the bandwidth that it needs to pay for 
out onto the internet, basically keeping a lot of that traffic in its own network for which it does not have to pay because it's just using its own infrastructure. So there's a tremendous benefit and that is to say, you know, economic motivation for ISPs to use proxying. So if one of that ISP's customers wants to use Shields Up to test their computer, I need to and I do detect that the proxy is an intermediary. Well, in doing, in, in seeing that it's an intermediary, I'm unable to affirmatively get that customer's actual IP address. It could be a public IP address that is publicly routable so that if I knew it, I could send probe, shields up probe packets to it to, to check that machine for open ports, but I cannot detect reliably what the, what the connection is. Now, he says he's installed an SSL proxy, and I've been very careful in the design of Shields Up even to detect that, so that I know that even though it's an SSL connection, it still is being proxied, and I just go no further. I say, I bring up a, an intercept page that says, hey, I'm very sorry, there's a proxy in between you and us. I yeah. cannot reliably determine your IP, and I just refuse to go any further. I mean, I couldn't for example, allow them to type in their IP because then bad guys could immediately use that to go test, you know, to have me test the security of random machines on the Internet. Oh, go check the NSA. Uh, no, thank you. I don't want GRC to be probing the NSA. So so there's just there's no way around that. There's no nothing I can do that is safe. And so I just simply stop. Yeah, I think that's completely reasonable. You can't do everything. You can't please everybody. All right, get ready. Get a cup of coffee. This is a long one. Another quad venti, venti latte, whatever it is you drink. Ben Eisenhower of Lexington, Kentucky, fed them a knuckle. He fed them a knuckle, whatever that means. Let's find out. Hey, guys, I want to mention a few thoughts on security questions. As a business intelligence professional, I always cringe when people solicit and and record my personal information. BI, uh, business intelligence, is uh, is a very interesting discipline which collates information and allows businesses to make intelligent choices about, you know, predictions about their future business and so forth. But it probably does make you a little sensitive to the idea of getting your information harvested. My family thought I was paranoid when at Disney World, I refused to let the ticket-taking machine take my fingerprint. What? Uh... I don't blame him. Jeez, this was supposed to control passing a multi-day ticket to another individual. So... Instead, I put the crease of my knuckle on the machine. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea what type of security practices they use in their corporate IT department, and I don't want a future biometric identifier escaping to the highest bidder. You know, he's absolutely right. I think it's unconscionable. Yeah, here, take this, Pluto. You know, God. It's none of their business. Take, Disney taking my fingerprints? Give me a yeah. break. And I feel the same way about security questions. It seems like this is the new popular thing to do because I keep getting grilled by my online accounts to provide answers to very personal questions. I tell them lie. I just say lie. As long as you can remember the lie. Sometimes up to as many as eight questions. This Where is just, was I born? God, yeah. I can't remember now. I just lie. You just got to write down your lies. Otherwise, you, you forget them. This is just another way for more of my personal sensitive information to get out of my control. I don't think anybody really cares the name of your first pet, but okay. I really feel they're missing the boat on security. And in fact, making us all less secure as time goes on. We, we know that those personal security questions are worthless, as we know from 
you know that uh, they, they they're now indicted the uh, the son of the Tennessee uh, legislator that yep. that cracked Sarah Palin's e- uh, Yahoo yep. email using security questions. Yeah, is this something that Sarbanes Oxley is <laughs> suggesting they do, or is it just their feeble attempt at multi-factor authentication? You be keys for everyone. That's Ben saying that, but I agree. One last comment. Here's another interesting piece of info on Wells Fargo. The username for my Wells Fargo online account was initially set by them to my social security number. You know, my Fidelity account does that. But now recently, Fidelity's given me strong encouragement to change it. Thank you. Yeah. I called in, was instructed to use an online screen to change this. I changed it and was feeling better. Then one day, months later, I was in automatic mode, went to the splash page, typed in my social security uh, and number and password by accident instead of this username well imagine my surprise it worked it worked our old usernames kept active if so is it so it seems for how long hmm, maybe you guys could get someone from wells to come up onto the show and grill them thanks guys keep up the good work well great question uh, or actually statements really yeah i just ben had a lot of interesting stuff to share and of course i and our listeners, I'm sure, agree with the sentiment of, you know, the idea, again, of, that it, it's a matter of risk reward. You know, our fingerprints are valuable. Yeah. I mean, they're valuable identity information. And the idea of giving them to Mickey Mouse because or a Mickey Mouse ticket taking machine right. at Disney World because they want to prevent you from passing a multi-day ticket around. You know, I mean, that uh, there's no way. Sorry. The machi- yeah. That a machine is going to get one of our listeners fingerprints and and what he's what he's worried about is now there's a uh, in a database at disney a record that combines his name and other information maybe credit card information with his fingerprint and somebody will sell it on in in, in a camera on ebay um along with his social security number maybe and disney I, will sell it ah uh, i mean look at what the privacy did they give you a privacy statement when they asked for it i, I bet you they didn't unbelievable yeah. Yeah, and so anyway, very tip, folks: use your knuckle when <laughs> when when it's when it's not a situation you a- actually want authentication. You don't want to provide any useful information. You know, you're you're somewhere where it's like, okay, I don't want to give this. I do. I do so not. He just ever flipped his finger to, over. I don't want to ever authenticate right. uh, again. Yeah, he just. I think he just gave it the back of his finger instead of the instead of the 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 meat of his of his finger. And it which, worked. A lot of sense. Yeah. Oh, oh the, not going to know. We got it. Oh, have fun. <laughs> Ryan Hort at Michigan State University wanted a bit about OQO. That's that new little teeny weeny. Did you get an OQO? You did, didn't you? Yep. Yeah. Steve, during the Google Chrome episode, you briefly mentioned you have an OQO PC. I've been interested in them for years, ever since they were announced prior to release. Yeah, they announced it like three years later, released it. Um, but I've never had the opportunity to see one. Would you comment a bit on yours? I'd love to hear your review. P.S. Security Now is my favorite programming across all media. Radio, television, film. I listen to it while running and doing yard and housework on the weekends. I love the show. Please don't change a thing. P.S.S. I think it's P.P.S. But anyway, Spinrite is fantastic and worth every penny. We use it often here at the office where it has become one of my must-have troubleshooting tools. All right. It saves drives more often than it should have to. By the way, I've been wondering, what is so wrong with the operating systems that they corrupt their file systems? Is it indeed buggy OS code that's responsible? Is it a failure in the drive firmware? I haven't noticed any correlation between OS lockups and the need for SpinWrite. The drives just seem to fail randomly. That's actually a very good question. Yeah, I think it, it's the systems are, it's like 
you know, chaos. Uh, I mean, formally math chaos where you're unable to, you know, predict the weather because there are just so right. many variables all interacting at once. You've, I mean, there's temperature, there's power supply power, there's vibration, there's, you know, OS activity. I mean, just so many variables. And there just isn't enough margin built into the reliability of, of all of those things. You know, the, the computers are not so cold that they can afford to warm up. The power supplies aren't so extra powered that they can afford not to have enough. The drives aren't don't have so much more tolerance in them that, that they're going to be reliable just themselves and on and on and on. And so when everything is sort of near the edge, it doesn't take much to 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 have the the stars align, so to speak, and cause there to be a problem. Um, I'm in love with my little OQO, Leo. Really? I really am. Um, the only complaint I have is that the battery life is about three hours. Well, that's not bad. And I, well, no, it's not bad. I mean, it's, ma- it's like many laptops, and in fact, it's yeah. it's a little bit more, probably about maybe yeah, about three hours. Um, it is the the reason I have it is that I I wanted true connectivity. My goal was that. I wanted to be able, wherever I was, if something comes up, I wanted to be able to answer the question, check Wikipedia or, or, you know, or check for something. I mean, this, you know, I'm, when I'm sitting here at home, I'm, I've become so used to the persistent wired into the network mm-hmm, mode. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and when I'm in a restaurant or I'm at Starbucks or I'm, I'm anywhere, it's like, hmm, you know, like, gee, I, I wish I had a net connection. And, you know, I've got my little trio that kind of has a web browser, but not really. And I didn't go with an iPhone because they were on the wrong network. By the way, did you see the Verizon now has a, a very, I mean, a, a, a touchscreen BlackBerry. The, it's the storm. 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 Which people are saying apparently has a tactile, a tactile touch yeah. where it, it taps back on your finger when it recognizes a touch. They call it ha- haptic response that, yeah right a haptic keyboard that really that, that makes a big difference there so you know anyway, nobody's it hasn't come out yet but the, uh, believe me i'll get one the minute it comes out <laughs> well and it's on my network it's on verizon right. i specifically left singular back when they were singular and before a and t acquired them because because edge just doesn't do it you need evdo it's you know dramatically higher speed and they were talking about umts that was going to be the the uh the singular uh you know, edge-related right. technology that was going to give us the same kind of performance, but it was already on Verizon, and it's still not available here. So I'm glad I made the move to Verizon. So anyway, but I just wanted a real Windows machine. So this is a, you know, it's 800 by 480 resolution. It's a, It has a Wacom active tablet as part of the screen. Although I've got to say, in my experience, I have a couple tablet machines with much larger screens, there you really do need real estate for like scrawling and writing and taking notes and things. So it's really not very useful to have, in my experience, that Wacom, although I think they've done it more for vertical, like vertical OEM applications is why it's there for like specific custom uh, purposes. But I really do like it. It's all, it has answered the, the need I have felt for quite a while of just having it always with me. It's small enough that it literally can be in my pocket and uh, it lets me be on the net because it has a Verizon uh, wireless WAN built in, a little antenna you can pull out if you need greater signal strength. And 
So wherever I am, I don't even need Wi-Fi. I'm able to get on the net at, at completely acceptable speeds, and I'm using Firefox. Firefox has a nice feature. I, I'm, I'm, by the way, Leo, falling in love with Firefox. Oh, good. I, that's okay. all I use now. I absolutely, um, everything I wanted to do, it turns out it has a way. One of the things is that the fonts on many web pages are a little small for this small screen. Firefox under advanced uh, font rendering features, you're able to say minimum font right, size. Right. And I set it to like 16, and now I don't have to like, constantly be scaling up all the screens. Mm-hmm, They're mm-hmm. just the right size for it. I mean, it's just... So anyway, it is a, it's a perfect solution. I did want to mention that the OQO Model 1 was pretty much horrible. It was a transmeta chip. It had a Ugh. horrible sort of like flat plastic keyboard. The Model 2, which is now what they're selling is far nicer. A real, you know, a BlackBerry or Trio style click, click, click keyboard. And um, anyway, it's just, it's a tremendous little machine if, if it works. I mean, it's expensive, it's pricey, um, but, you know, I, I, it, it finally answered my need for literally always having a connected window, a real Windows machine with me. Hmm. And you just, you just carry it with you all the time in your pocket or where do you put it? No, I've got a little, actually, I, I found a Franklin Day Planner mm-hmm. That was sort of a big one that actually had handles, and I hacksawed out the rings inside okay. to create sort of just an empty binder area, and so I have a whole little kit of stuff. I've got my Bose Quiet Comfort three headphones and uh, an iPod with with background music and the the little Windows machine and a sort of a, it's you know sort of it's like a little tiny little briefcase. That I that I do. Oh, and the and the Kindle is it fits in a side pocket perfectly. But, so but Steve, you don't local, travel. Local. You don't go anywhere. <laughs> I go to Starbucks. <laughs> and I Starbucks kit. I go to Starbucks and I eat out. So I so I'm reading my Kindle, and if something comes up, I can you know order a book or or check the ready. Check, check the net. Yeah, You're I'm ready. ready. I love it. <laughs> um, Jimmy Retzlaff in San Jose, California. He wonders whether banks will ever learn. I have a credit card from J.P. Morgan Chase, and they just sent me an email trying to sell me services. As far as I could tell, it's actually genuine. The links, oh man, an email. I know. The links all go to Chase domains. The headers are not suspicious. It has my full name and the last four digits of my credit card, etc. I've asked them not to send me such emails, but that's another story. At the bottom of the email is a section entitled, Email Security Information, with the following text. If you're concerned about the authenticity of this message, please click here. <laughs> Isn't that great? Oh, yeah. Or call the phone number on the back of your credit card and reference the Chase Library code ALLSTANDINSR1001. If you would like to learn more about email security or want to report a suspicious email, click here. <laughs> huh? Well, I'm concerned about email security, and because of that, the last thing I want to do is click a link in an email that seems to be from a bank. If I were putting together a phishing scam, I can't imagine better text to put in the bait note. You are right on, Jimmy. Yeah, I mean, it's just nuts. It's Unbelievable. Like, oh, yeah, the, and as he says, when will banks ever learn? It just, it just you know, the only, as, as our listeners know, the only acceptable thing to say, if you are concerned about the authenticity of this message... Call the phone number on the back of your credit card, period. I mean, you cannot click on a link in a message whose authenticity you are questioning. <laughs> I guess if they said, 
type www.jpmorganchase.com in to your browser, that'll be okay. But click a link. Yeah. Give me a break. yeah pl- please press the back of your knuckle onto our onto your credit card. And, oh, just what a nuts. world. What a world. All right, coming up, James Hudson in the UK with the troubling news of the week. Are you ready for the troubling news of the week? Oh. <laughs> we do that. But first, before we do the troubling news of the week, I want to talk about GoToMeeting. This is far from troubling. This is encouraging. Uh, GoToMeeting comes from Citrix. You know Citrix. Great company. Makes great products. You probably tried GoToMyPC. They made the basis for Windows Remote Access. They know remote access inside and out. And they've put it together with meeting software to give you the best possible online meeting uh, it's it's so much better than any of the other guys. I want you to try it free. I'm going to tell you how you can do that in just a second. Mac or PC, here's what you do. You, it takes you two minutes to put GoToMeeting on your system. I mean, really, it's that quick. You just go to gotomeeting.com, a couple of clicks of the mouse, and you're good to go. Then, anytime you're on the phone with somebody and you can tell they're getting bored, they're playing Tetris, they're not getting it, whatever. Or maybe you've got a, a business trip planned a flight across the country for a one-hour meeting or or across town. You don't want to spend the money on gas. You don't want the security hassle going through the airport. Go to meeting.com. That's what you got. You just got to start thinking. Go to meeting.com. How can I use this? Because more and more you'll realize go to meeting gets the job done. Travel less, get more done, be more effective, close more sales. You can use it for collaboration. You can use it for training. I use it to rehearse speeches. Go to meeting. Easy. It's very, by the way, you security experts, we're glad to know. 128 bit SSL encryption, point to point, very secure. Uh, one low flat monthly rate for as many meetings as you want, as often as you want. And because GoToMeeting, like GoToMyPC, uses a, a third kind of, they use a server. So you both connect to the server, both connections are outbound, no firewall hassles, no configuration issues. You don't even have to get the IT department involved. It's just transparent. It just works. Go to gotomeeting.com slash security now to give it a try. Here's the deal. 30 days, unlimited use. Use it as often as you want, as many ways as you want. In fact, I I encourage you to try it in as many scenarios as possible with clients, with colleagues, uh, with the boss. Gotomeeting.com slash security now. Try it free for 30 days. I know you're going to love it. I use it all the time. Gotomeeting.com slash security now. All right, Steve Arino, the troubling question, actually news of the week. This is from James Hudson, another British listener. We have a lot of listeners from the UK. I think that's fantastic. Oh, maybe we have a lot of people who are writing to us from the UK. Well, they're more literate there, you know. <laughs> oh, careful. Oh, boy. Uh, he said, get Hi, Steve. I opened Outlook 2007 for the first time in a few days today. Since I use Gmail, I find myself going to the website more often than not as I don't particularly like Outlook's IMAP handling. And I found there were a whole load of undeliverable emails in my box. After searching around, there were a load of items relating to them in my sent mail folder with spam-type subjects. Uh Looking at the headers, I found they had actually been sent from my PC. So I did the obvious thing and did a virus and a spyware scan, which revealed a couple of tracking cookies in IE and Opera, but not my default browser Firefox. Nothing to be sending spam. Looking at the sent items again, I noticed each one began with not read. Now, doing a Google search revealed that they were Outlook read receipts that get sent when you delete an email without reading it. 
Yeah, I hate those read receipts. <laughs> I hate those. That's one of the reasons I don't use Outlook. Further research reveals that Outlook has a bug in it that means if an email requesting a read receipt is deleted without being read, then it will send not read receipts automatically no matter what setting you're actually using. Now, this is good to know because I turn off the email yep. receipts feature in Outlook. I don't want to be doing this. And set it to never. never set it to no. never. But here's, yes. here's, here's the point. In my case, this is using Outlook 2007 with IMAP, which Microsoft has admitted is a bug on the MSDN forums, the developer network forums. Last year, he gives us a couple of links. But there are some reports of it happening with Outlook 2003 and POP3 as well. I'm not sure how much of an issue this is, as it only sends it out if you don't read the email asking for a read receipt. But it does generate a lot of extra and completely unnecessary traffic. So is and, a spammer using this faculty, this facility to... Well, it verifies your existence. Uh, I mean, that's why it's so troubling is that, you know, many of us can look at our inbox and, you know, easily identify spam. Right. And we know that it's dangerous to open them. We don't want to preview them. So, the, you know, as we know, the safest thing we can do is just delete them. And that's what we tell people. Delete them without reading them. Delete right. them without opening. If it's, if, it's, if it's clear to you that this is, you know, not something, you know, from your mom um, or, you know, some, something completely random. Well, now we learn that even if you've configured Outlook to never send acknowledgement of read receipts, a bug in Outlook causes it to do exactly that. It sends, well, if the email had a valid from address. Now, the reason he found these in his unsent folder, you know, is that they were bogus addresses. So his Outlook was unable to send them to where they were trying to go. But that just, all that did was, was reveal the bug. You could certainly imagine, you know, spammers sending from some sort of a, you know, uh, spoofing the source as being some sort of a catching server somewhere. And it would catch any email that that someone had deleted without reading and in the process confirm that they were real that they mm. that, that here was a valid useful address i mean this is a serious privacy concern so the pro- so what happened was a spammer sent him email with a read receipt even though he had said never this bug that crops up in imap and pop3 in some cases sent the read receipt the spammer now the problem is don't spammers they don't use real return addresses so maybe this isn't I agree. It's not, you know, the end of the world, but it's certainly the case that I just I wanted our listeners to know that any mail they get, which it requests a read receipt, which they delete without opening, will result in Outlook sending a not read response, even though you've configured it not to do so. I have to say, I, I just hate it because I mean, for security reasons, but I also hate it because people will then send me a note saying you deleted my message. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, it could be someone you know who's annoying. And it's like, oh, not well, this guy. It's not even that. I have three or four. I use IMAP. I have three or four systems. If I delete it on one system, maybe I maybe I already read it and responded uh, or whatever. Very good point. So, it, 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 you, right, you would have duplicate copies pulled on, on, on a different clients. And you say, oh, I already read that somewhere else. Yeah. Yep. So I've, I've had actually had that happen from fans who say, you, you didn't read my message? Said, no, I read it. <laughs> I just deleted a copy of it. Oh. Oh. Steve, a great 12 questions. If people want to ask you a question, how do they go about doing that? GRC.com slash feedback. Okay. 
and I read as many as I can. I love hearing from our listeners. We get so much good, you know, I get ideas for shows. I get, you know, news, you know, people are writing in. As I expected, by the way, many people had picked up on the sock stress issue yeah. on on Wednesday and Thursday before the, the, the pod, you know, after we'd recorded it, knowing that this was going to be a big deal. And so, you know, our listeners are on top of things. And I really appreciate them letting, you know, me know uh, what they see going on so that we have a chance to make sure everyone knows. You so grc.com slash feedback. And of course, when you're at grc.com, don't forget the great spin, right? You can get it there. And uh, it is the disk recovery and maintenance utility a must have for everybody who has. If you've got a hard drive, you need spin, right? Just that's all it is to it. Uh, also, some great free stuff, like we mentioned, Shields Up. Uh, uh, I love Wismo. It's a little tool that's just really fun. All of that for free at grc.com. 16 kilobit versions of the show, too, for your friends who are on dial-up still. Transcripts. A lot of people like to read along uh, as they listen. It's all there, grc.com. See, we will talk again next week. See you in a week, Leo. Bye-bye. Bye. Security now.